This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. All right, so my name is uh, Reverend Kidu Lian Shutt. I'm ordained in the Suzuki Roshi lineage by Blanche. Uh, she was my teacher, layperson, priest, and Dharma transmitted. Um, so, as many of you said, this is a really distressing time um, worldwide, first by COVID and then the repercussions of COVID, such as economic situation for many of us. And then now, of course, some um, very not new and just much more obvious and upfront um, racism, uh, not only in the US, uh, we, we're seeing it with George Floyd and the way, um, and I think it's not unrelated that uh, a white woman in Central Park, you know, uh, faked uh, her distress um, to because she understood the power structure of racism. And, you know, because we've seen many black lives, men and women, and um, perhaps other non-binary that we don't know. In fact, it's true. I shouldn't even say perhaps. Um, so, uh, Yes, there's been a lot of distress. And of course, and I'm gonna say a few things which might be distressing because I know we all have seen the video. So I'm, I'm doing it with intention. Of course, it was really difficult to watch the video, right? Eight and a half, 8.46, right? Eight minutes, 46 seconds of someone basically um, being killed, murdered and telling us, describing his, can you imagine? I will say I consider us sitting still for that long um, and, and even thinking, you know, as meditator, our breath is so important that to imagine not having breath for that long. My, my adoptive father died of emphysema and so I know I watched him struggle with breath uh, for for the last months of his life and it's um, really distressing to watch and I know that it's really distressing for the person and then to hear of course his describing his death is calling for his mother I mean that just hits and I will say that I also was incredibly distressed by seeing the um, way that Officer Chauvin, not just the knee on the neck, but just his, his facial expression. That's what I also was really blown away by. Just a really disregard. Like he's like bored or like, you know, and again, that's again, taking on this attitude. And then as a, Asian American and political, I will say it was like, there's that cop standing there <clears throat> that's Asian, and he looked like he could have been Vietnamese, which I am. So I was, and it turns out he's Hmong. Um, and so there was a, lots of layers of distress watching that. And um, of course, again, with the pandemic, it's, it's not separate. Um, I feel like actually that our practice is the practice of distress. Really, um, we, we take the posture. Well, I will say, let me just back up for a minute and say that um, as I want to like sit down today with you all, um, I'm really aware that um, you know, in Zen we say um, the posture itself is Buddha. The posture itself is Buddha. Not like Buddha, not like could be Buddha. 
in taking this posture of awakening, <clears throat> we are Buddha. And so, um, of course, for most of us, and it seems like at least in this group that I can see, um, <clears throat> we're s sitting down. So in the seated posture or in the meditative posture, it could be like most of us in this kind of meditation, I either sitting down or lying down. And of course, the Buddha could say it could stand and walk also. <clears throat> and so in the seated posture, um, and especially in Zen, we're really into sitting still. And um, in that stillness, it's really useful because then you can really watch the subtlety. You can really observe what is going on. And it does begin right here in this body, this heart, and this mind as it is right now. And so what is the posture of awakening? Um, and it is one of openness. You know, in Zen, we, the first foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the body and the body. And while there are five of them, mostly, most of the tradition, we start with posture in Zen and then a lot of other Buddhist tradition. There's also the emphasis on breath. Um, and so when we, you know, give Zazen instruction, this is the posture where we lift our chest and settle it. It's a one of opening of the chest. So there's an openness and a settleness in this seat. Um, and Mostly, mostly our practice right, is to be a witness. That's how, where we start. We're a witness. We sit still to witness what is happening. And that is, an, an, could, you could say, a version of the instruction uh, in response to what we're supposed to do with the first noble truth, right? That in life, there is suffering. There's dukkha, right? usually translated as suffering. I myself like dis-ease, because it feels very body, discontent, dissatisfaction. And I would say in these days, it's also distress. So our practice is to bear witness to um, being with our disease. It's not turning away from it. It's like, as it, however much I, and, and it was true, you know, Deb and I, you're trying to turn away in some way, or, or you go like this when you watch such a video, because it's hard. And um, so, and yet, and yet, we have to be a witness. We have to acknowledge. And I would take the first instruction, classically it's called to investigate. So I would say to witness, and I would actually, um, would also to say to acknowledge fully. Right? What is the distress that is happening right now? You know that earlier in the week, you know, now that um, police officers are kneeling with the protesters, right? On a national morning news, uh, American national morning news channel, um, they were interviewing the police chief in New York who was kneeling, right? And then afterwards they were saying, uh, interviewing him and saying, do you think there, there is, you know, um, the charge or the people are saying that there's racism in the New York police force. And um, would you say that that's true? And he's like, oh, no, no, there's no racism. There are people who are racist. And on one level, I can hear that distinction, right? That He's trying to say not the whole thing, except we have to at this point, it cannot be an individual. Just as our witnessing cannot just be an internal witness, we need to go witness the suffering of the world. And so the, the interviewer said at the end, you know, back in the studio, that you know, if you don't have, it's, it's hard to watch that while there's sympathy, there isn't the ability to acknowledge that there's racism, there's a systemic racism. Because if you don't start from the same place, how do we even dialogue or have any sense of resolution if we don't, if we don't all admit to the, that, the problem? Doesn't mean that we don't have different nuances, 
or have different perspective on it. And we have to have some basis that this is so. And we as queer people or allies will also understand that, right? If people don't, if people are just like, oh, you know, you can love whoever you want, but then don't admit to that there's oppression of queer folks, then there's no way to fix it in a bigger sense, not just an individual sense. And so the posture that we take is also one of receiving, right? It's open to receiving information. And especially information that is difficult, that is distressful, that is not satisfaction, <laughs> that is discontent, that is painful. And of course, we're doing that with ourselves. And of course, I could talk about, you know, uh, the obvious one is we witness our own body distress, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, early on uh, in the whole shelter in place, you know, my, um, I and I know many teachers have talked about sheltering places like being in a sashim, because you're just with yourself, right? And this body, this heart, and this mind, and in a way you're secluded, and so it is watching all the disease and how do we um, manage that. Um, I know that uh, a joke someone sent me early on was, you know, like the, when the whole six feet distancing, now it just seems like normal thing, but when that whole thing started coming out and, you know, and someone's like, oh, you know, I need to stay six feet away from my refrigerator. Right? That's the distancing I need to be practicing, right? Um, and so um, that shows how we deal. Like yeah, many of us can relate to that. When we're distressful, we go to eat. <laughs> we just go to distract ourselves, right? And so we watch our own, and that kind of practice in sashin or on the cushion, we can see it as relating to ourselves, to our emotions for the most part, and also our thoughts and our beliefs. And I think that's the other thing is that, um, you know, I, I apologize, I don't remember his name and I meant to look it up, I forgot. Another interview was, um, uh, there's a um, museum now, and, and if someone remembers, and I can't remember where it is either, but I think somewhere in the south of, um, as a memorial to all the lynching in the United States. And they literally, uh, the one, what they wanted to do is they had these poles that, in, that represent bodies. And the director of that museum, and again, I apologize, I don't remember his name, an African-American gentleman. And he said that, you know, while the, in essence, the slavery in the sense of individuals Right? not uh, of being owned and of being oppressed in that way is done. The, the greater injustice that hasn't changed is the construction of how black people are not people, right? Uh, and, and that's the part that we have to dismantle at this point is our beliefs that we've been taught. Right? And we know that as practitioner, but the biggest delusion right, is, a, is how we think, what are our beliefs, and then from those beliefs, we act on them. And, and it determines our behavior. That be, and we're taught, we're taught who and what is of value, whose life is of more value than other. And then also in, in our watching of distress, to me, so much of I've, what I've witnessed as my distress is when I feel inconvenienced. And, um, and so how is it that we now can see that the, the greater suffering and distress we need to witness is not just about a comfort? Right? So, so this is why also our practice is to be with difficulties and see the kind of difficulty for what it is. Is it, is it just inconvenient that, you know, I know by this, I don't mean it as people are complaining, and I've heard a lot 
from people about how protesters are outside their window and there's helicopters and equating it to war zone. And I'm really sorry to say it is not a war zone. Uh, having lived through one is not a war zone. It is distressful for sure. And yet because of American conditioning, uh, the United States conditioning, we, we equate this little bit of distress, right? In terms of noise, in terms of body senses as something larger. And most of their wars actually happening now in the, in the world. And so we want to also um, be informed, right? Appropriately in, informed and appropriately negotiate our, our distress in relation to what's going on. Because my distress right, as an Asian American, and of course we all know that during the pandemic, this whole Chinese virus thing is, there's been a lot of racism towards people of Asian descent also. And yet in comparison to black lives, right? It, not, not that one is more than the other. And right now, the distress is very much about actual lives, right? So we're here to be receptive to information that's difficult or is distressful and that we don't understand. So we need to, we need to practice listening. I will say, and um, I'm getting closer and closer to enacting this, I will say that after the elections, of Donald Trump, right? One thing I realized is that it really seemed that a hope, one group of people, and this, this is you know, not just my thought, of white men, working class white men, do not feel heard and seen. And this, this is one group that really voted for Trump. And as an Asian American where invisibility is so much part of the racism towards us, I said, oh, I can relate to that. And so I thought, oh, I should go out and do deep listening, right? And just really, and, and while I can relate to that, I really don't understand how that feels for them and is for. And so I would go out and do deep listening. And then I couldn't do it because I was like, I don't know if I can sit still and receive that kind of information. And yet now with witnessing, right? how um, there's another story about a black woman who was talking to a, a police, you know, in the whole ride gear, except his visor was up. And I, I apologize, I don't remember the city. And she was expressing how distressful things were. And, the, and this is the, the intention of the news story, right? And then at the end, they hugged the police officer and her. And then they interview her and she said, it was a transformative moment because I could look into his eyes and I can, can see, right? And he heard me and that was a transformative moment. And so how is it that we can just take our, use this still position that we've learned from practice to be able to receive information we don't understand? Probably in the next week, even this coming week, um, I'm going to do an online version where I'm going to invite people to just come and we will all just be a witness, you know, maybe in the chat, people will write, sign in and say, I would like to speak. Of course, I'm trying to figure out some container so that it's not just, you know, uh, inappropriate <laughs> Zoom bombing kind of thing, right? So if that happens, maybe I can send it to Cato and we can send it out. Uh, and I'm, you know, trying to figure out how we can do it in safety, in person. So the other thing then, so deep listening, which is so much, uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, that's a huge part of um, skillful, wise speech. Right speech is listening. It's not just how we speak, but it's the receiving of the information. The holding of people's truths, especially truths we don't understand. And then, of course, part of that is we've had a whole kind of practice with not knowing. Right? This is our, our, our beginner's mind, is the mind that doesn't know. 
as willing to be informed, or as, of course, Dogen says, right? To go forth and experience a myriad things is delusion, that the myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening, which means that we, we're practicing to let phenomena internally and externally inform us, not to go and interpret, you know, and decide what needs to happen and how they should do it. Of course, it, we can decide what we want to do. And, and also for ourselves, just pausing to let our emotions inform us, take the course, and from there, decide balancing that with wisdom and experience and also the, not just an individual experience and wisdom, but collective. Uh, and then of course, we're also um, sitting with inten in, excuse me, intentionality. Because okay? we're when we go to sit down, we're making a vow. And in fact, um, perhaps it's because obviously I'm a priest and I've obviously done several vowing, public vowing, by the way, a vowing is public. And it's public not just because it's saying, you know, witness me making these vows. It's public, you do know it's public because you're asking everyone present to support you to live your vows. And that your vow is with everyone. And so our vow is to be with distress. Our vow is to actually take those other positions, <laughs> right? Standing, you know? I heard a story about uh, an aunt, a white aunt of a friend who has a, a black niece, you know, and she is, she's older and she's really afraid of this whole COVID thing. She went to a protest, stood at the edge so that she could be a witness right, in response to George Floyd and then for her black niece. It should be for herself also, I would say. And I would say it was probably for herself. Maybe she couldn't acknowledge that. So standing as witness, standing as engagement, and of course all the walking that's been done in these protests, these marches, so our, these are meditative positions also. Lying down, there's been protests where people lie down for the eight minutes and 46 seconds in the same position. And I would say, perhaps we could add, kneeling would be another meditative posture that perhaps the Buddha, if he was around now, might say is also a meditative posture. Can kneeling also be our posture, a vowing posture as witness and as engaging, not just witnessing, but really engaging our intentionality, our aspiration, our willingness to be receptive, open, to be with conditions, to be with people, especially those we are taught as other. Also, I'm really grateful right, that we could come from a tradition in which the posture right, that we are Buddha means that we begin, right, we rest in the, our practice, in, in my opinion, our practice is mostly to give us confidence right, that we are Buddha. Right? Because our tradition, and then to have more and more faith that what is taught in the tradition that we are Buddha, right? You don't have to become Buddha. We are Buddha. And so practice helps us to remember, to go come back right, to the knowledge that we are whole, perfect, and complete. Of course, we can be more skillful. In essence, though, it is it is a 
I would say a belief, but it, and it needs to be, be a belief that's enacted. That's also the greatness of Zen. Right? The greatness of Zen is it has to be an interaction. The Bodhisattva vow is with others, right? We, we, I'm not here to find ease, reduce my stress, or con find contentment and satisfaction for myself. I'm doing it with others. This is our vow. This is the Mahayana's vow. And so how do we also, once we become more and more confident in our Buddhaness, we also go and dismantle all the ways in which the Buddhaness of all phenomena, especially of all beings, is also not made available to, to them, to others, to all of us. So that's what we're dismantling, the lack of access to be able to know your wholeness, your completeness, because from wholeness and completeness, and that, and then that wholeness and completeness is interconnected. Then, how you know? How can we harm another? How can we look bored? How could we even put our knee on someone else's neck? I, you know, that's the thing. Because if this is my sibling, if this is if. George Floyd pain is my pain, if his life is my life, then I will not be able to do such an act. This is, and, and yet we have to practice that and we have to keep dismantling all the ways in which some part of us, you know, want to identify with that versus that. I didn't want to identify with that Asian American cop. Right? And yet I have to. I have to know closer and closer to how I might be in the same position and do the same thing. Because in knowing that, then I have awareness in acknowledging my hatred and delusion. Then I can be more careful and intentional about how I don't enact that. So, we are privileged to have this practice and to be able to practice this practice the way we do. We're all in shelter, for one thing. And so, from this place of privilege, which many of you have said, you, you know, acknowledge and have gratitude that we can do this, from this place, can we um, carry our posture of awakening as we sit, stand, walk, lie down, and I would oppose to you, kneel when appropriate, with the world, with the distress of the world. Thank you very much. I would be really um, honored to um, take any comments, requests, and I take challenges. Kato. I just have a statement that and it's something that's been not only bothering me during this, like these situations, but also just even before. And um, I just wanted to say it and think, get what you think about it. I, I'm so exhausted in this country of money being more important than anything else. I mean, I keep thinking to myself, why are the police forces not inundated and flooded with mental health professionals who do fit for work checks? Why is there not better oversight? Why do we hire murdering thugs? You know, um, why are there not classes when you work in a certain community to help deprogram the connection of skin color and criminal. And I come back to because it costs money. Um, why don't people who are sick and old die um, rather than being treated because of money? 
Um, why we have a president who said, I'm not going to shut down the country again in the future because it's, you know, hurt our economy. So it's better if people die than if we have our economy go through a downturn. And I, I don't know. I get so frustrated about it. I realize that money is power in this country and they're equal um, or they, they, you know, money means power, but I just, I don't know. Have you thought about that or what do you think about that? Or, you know, I, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, how does this work with our relationship with, with this freaking money that is more important than anything else? Uh-huh. Thank you. Question. <clears throat> um, I would say that those who practice with me will know that I don't like why. Um, and the, the reason for that is um, I, have, I know that when I um, go why, I have a sense of I already know what the answer is for me. And also it's very, to me, you know, I'm, I'm just putting up, you asked what my, my response is. So um, I find how much more useful as a practice. How is it that we have a president that would say these things? How is it, which on a certain level doesn't mean we don't come to the same answer on you, but and in how it's much more open and I, I'm investigating, I'm seeing how, and if I go to ask other how, then I get more information. And then how is it then that this can be different? It opens me up much more. I know when I'm, I'm why, I'm an aversive type if you haven't, don't know me. So my why is usually a, a pushing away. Why is he like that? Why are they like that? Whereas how, then I, I'm, I'm activating my curiosity. How is this possible? Just like the, my sense of, my, my aspiration of the deep listening practice that I was talking about is then I will know, like basically the, the deep listening is how, how do you come to what you believe? Tell me, inform me, right? And then hopefully how can we find commonality and then how can we change this? And I think having um, uh, ways of being, because it, Capitalism doesn't, I, on one level, yes, of course, money is power. And obviously, we're in a capitalist system in the United States. And it isn't the only way to be a nation, you know. So um, how can we change that capitalism doesn't have to be? Like, we, we got really close, you know, I mean, technically, we have, you know, healthcare for all kind of, you know, and it's just started to crumble, but that was one way of how, how we could have a different way to provide as opposed to, of course, you know, it's a multi-layer thing. So it's just an example of how, if we um, try to find different ways, does that answer your question? Or I think, yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, I think I agree with you. I think the my questioning of why was a pushing away, and I think you're right. I think how is listening and thinking about how to improve it. Okay, don't forget the our other big thing is we think we we have, we're you know isolated. So don't forget, ask with others. This is a time in which we have to rely on our communities and the connections we've made to inform us. By that also doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some skillful wisdom, right? I've heard so many, I myself have had some experience, but I know that many black people, you know, I've heard from people they haven't heard from from years about what certain people should do. So yeah, as, as someone, at least one of you said earlier, informing yourself is also useful, how it comes with different Yes, Richard. Oh, thank you. Uh, listening closely to uh, the words said today, I get the impression that one of the things I am learning 
through what's happening and that I see happening in the media is that ordinary Americans such as myself are getting a clearer picture of what the word domination means. We are understanding physically what black people have felt for centuries in America, that they were dominated. And when we see physical force used against citizens in our streets, we understand what physical domination is in a way that we haven't had to previously. I can see that now in the media. In my life, I have never felt physically and threatened by police officers. But now I understand why black people do feel physically threatened by police officers. And I begin to fear for not just black people now, but for all people, because we have a president who is speaking about physically dominating our population. That's all I have to say. Um, Richard, since you have been coming to Hartford for a while, and I know you've been to a few of my talks, and we've talked in the tea, can I um, interact with you a little bit on this? Would you be open to a little exchange? Oh, yes, of course. So, thank you. And I'm, you know, it is, it is empathy in the sense of how it could happen to me, which is, you know, a layer of empathy uh, is useful. This is why um, getting to know people that are not around us or that we've been told are, you know, will hurt us or will <laughs> don't look like us or whatever other is, right, um, is useful because then you can say, oh, Right? When I have a friend or a sibling or someone who, a Sangha maid, a Kalyanamitra, that I can see the effect of harm that I am not experiencing due to my privilege, then it makes me relate. And certainly when it feels like it might come to myself in proximity, um, it helps us to connect. And our practice is also, um, because I will say that I had a little ouch in your um, beginning, which is that us normal people. And I really want to really ask you to, to be aware of that, that deep listening. I, I often say that zazen is deep listening, right? Because we're just sitting there by ourselves and come on. Mostly we hear all our internal dialogue. And um, our practice is, you know, to let part of, part of the practice intention of letting thoughts just come and go is not to get caught in the content without a doubt. And when you don't get caught in the content, then you start to see the patterns of them, one, and then also the Another layer of practice is to see um, our, how we believe in them. What is our belief in them? And is it true now? Does it fit this situation now? So we start to be really uh, noticing where, how it is and where it is that we um, frame our experience. That is, um, one, we acknowledge that this is my point of view. And so it's not that we negate that. What we do, though, is we say, oh, that's my point of view. And if I was in, and actually not if, not if you're a bodhisattva. There's no if I'm in relation to other people. When I'm in relation to other people, then how would the impact of the way I frame experience, what is the impact on them? And, and I'm sure my, my tenderness is also my location in the, you know, the matrix of oppression is that, um, you know, the, a flavor of Asian American racism is that, you know, we're, we're not 
part of the United States. We're not American enough. Now we're the perpetual foreigner. And perhaps as, as queers, we also, as, as oppressed people, we have to also be careful. And part of listening is listening to how we've internalized. So I, I wonder if the, the normal is that homophobic internalization. Right? Is it, what is normal? There is no, normal is only in relation to, it's only oppressors who tell you what normal is. When you're out, when you're out of sync with what they think normal is, right? So, um, yeah. How's that landing, Richard? I would say I'd have to agree with you. Uh, I, one of the reasons I moved to San Francisco 30 years ago was that I felt I could be exactly who I wanted to be in public and in the workplace. And uh, I didn't quite get that feeling in my hometown of Boston. Uh, and I have so here in this city, I have felt liberated. Uh, this is more or less the Republic of San Francisco. It has its own spirit. And I always felt that spirit when I came to this city and I wanted to be here immediately, so I moved here. Now I see that spirit of just being able to be who you are, being endangered on a national scale. Because ordinary people are showing up in the streets and demonstrating that spirit and they're being some t threatened, sometimes beaten, gassed, and so on, right before our eyes. And now we understand, I think, what the threat is now in our body politic. And it means much more now to become actively engaged. Uh, politics is about becoming actively engaged in the body politic and it's not just a matter of staying home. And when I see people coming out into the streets and actively engaging and seeing their, their courage, it does motivate me to do the same now. And that's what I feel. Ordinary people have to come out and become actively engaged in order to let the people in power know that they can't get away with dominating people. Thank you. And I want to invite, um, if your tendency, uh, and, and by tendency, I, your, I don't actually mean just your personal, because we are systemically conditioned. If your tendency, habitual tendency, I like to say that that's kind of karma, um, is to move forward. Um, then I invite you to step back. And if your habitual tendency, which is supported, colluded, reinforced by systems, is to, and, and I even see there's my um, ability, privilege coming through. And it's, I would take back the word step. So it's to, it's generally to move forward, then I will um, invite you to move back. And if your habitual tendency is to move back, I want to invite you to move forward and share yourself. Christina, are you still on? I am. Christina. I'm still on. Okay. Do you, you want to share anything, by chance? In general, on how I'm feeling. Yeah, in response to the talk. Christina is a student. Um, I think I have tried to be extra conscientious of um, 
I've opened my space even more to my friends who are black for them to be able to call me or video chat with me and also I reach out to them a lot more um, because a lot of what's coming up for them is having white friends who are saying I'm exhausted this is exhausted this is exhausted seeing all of that and to a black person hearing a white person say I'm exhausted is very painful um, and so I try to open my space not to just my black friends but to kind of carry the weight of that space to my white friends to not reach out to the black friends of ours to express their exhaustion because I feel as a person of color who's not black, I feel responsible to help carry the weight. Um, so it's not put on black friends and family because there's enough weight that they're carrying. So I think that's important to note. I think it's important to ask the hows and to your black friends and black community on how they're feeling. And if they're expressing something that may come off to you or you might interpret as aggressive, understand that it's not you, that they need to feel a safe space to express. And sometimes I do think it's just nice to even call your black friends and family and offer to just sit with them like we are. Because a lot of times the silence in that way, giving the space, feels really good to them to just have a moment of quiet. Because right now everybody hopefully is fighting the fight. Christina, since you're a student, can I ask you a question? Yes. Tell me how you're doing this for yourself. Can you come on, by chance, picture-wise? It goes in and out, so sometimes it freezes you, and then I, <laughs> it just gets weird, so. So how, how is what you're doing for yourself? Um, for myself, because yes, it is very important to take care of yourself in order to hold the space for others. Speak, um, speak in the eye, Christina, remember? Uh, I, you. Oh, I am trying to come back into practice. I haven't been practicing. Um, I can tell when my container is broken and I need to reset and that's where I'm at. So like this morning I did the SF Zen Center Zazen uh, instruction again because I feel that distant from my practice. So I just wanted to review um, and then trying to come back into A to Z um, and trying to not make excuses for not sitting when I wake up. <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, I, th I think we have to remember that the, how do we make our sense of self not a problem, <laughs> right? So the only way, I, well, a way I would say to work with this is to, um, remember, and, and I think it's also a way that doesn't um, burn us out, is to remember that any action you take, you know, what is it that's for yourself? What is it that's for yourself? 
because racism, let's talk about racism, affects us all. All the isms affect us all because we're affected by the world. Our location changes. And so the appropriateness of how much space we take up. I would say that my, uh, I need to expand on this, but you know, Indra's net, there are no the, Indra's net, Indra's net is a sense that um, there's a net that connects us all and each of us are like a jewel at a connection point and we all reflect each other. And that's a really useful analogy image to hold. And I will say that I would like to emphasize the net, right? And so depending on conditions, sometimes my jewel is getting a lot more resources. There's a lot more easy excess of energy to my jewel. And um, it can stress the net itself. So our practice is not to care for the jewels because there is inequality if we're, you know. So given the conditions of the worlds, the jewels are all different, fed different ways and some care, like stress the net a lot. And so how is it that we keep the pathways open so that there's enough resources, enough nourishment to all the jewels. And if I, you know, how can I move the resources? Maybe this is one answer you, Cato. How do I help move the resources through to support, you know, to take the stress off of one part of the net? Or because of the lack of support, you know, a jewel is now does not have air. Let's just make it really direct. And can't breathe. How do I get oxygen over there? How do I get oxygen over there? Especially if I happen to have extra oxygen given my location and the way that resources are flowing in this condition. All right. Oh, I'm up at 11. I think this is a good time. And... All right. Um, thank you yeah. very much. I so appreciate being able to be with you. I will say that when I sat down and, you know, could see you all, I'm so grateful for this, this Sangha and this sanctuary because, you know, the connections we do have as queers, as oppressed people in that way, um, or allies of it, you know, um, supports me, I know, to um, go out and engage with the world and witness and engage and be with and try to alleviate the suffering. And at, at some point to end the distress of the world. Thank you very much.